So listen, great for Margaret and I to be with you this morning and to have the opportunity to just share the word of God and, and something that we're carrying on our heart for churches in this particular season. And I want to read from Luke chapter 18 this morning, if you have a Bible. We're reading from Luke chapter 18, um, verses 1 through to 8 together. It says, Then he, that was Jesus, spoke a parable to them that men or people, men in the generic sense, men and women, ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. And there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterwards he said within himself, though I don't fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect to cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them and speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, Will he really find faith in the earth? We're taking time this morning to take a look at, a brief look at this, this parable, the parable of the unjust judge. And you know, I don't know about you, but I've never met anyone who has ever really said to me, I'm totally happy with my prayer life. And I want to say to you today, I'm certainly not totally happy with mine, and I'm not coming here today to give that impression. And I've never met anyone who, who has said that to me. Oh, I'm totally happy with the amount of time I spend with God. And yet that's the subject I want us to just dip into this morning and look into. And you know, whenever I come along to a meeting or if I go along to a conference and someone gets up and, and they introduce the fact that they're going to talk about prayer, I have to be honest with you that very often the first thing, the first thought that will cross my mind is that I'm not going to feel good at the end of this. Why is it that when we talk about prayer, it often comes with a message that doesn't encourage us deeper into prayer, but sends us away feeling that we're a failure when it comes to spending time with God? And although we're going to talk about prayer today, I want to assure you that condemnation is not the objective of what I want to share with you today, but rather encouragement. And you know, as we go through life, we do loads of things, don't we? We will all have gone through a lot of activities and done a lot of things at the end of life. And over 35 years in ministry, I have found that sometimes at the end of life, people reflect back and sometimes they express their regrets of how they've spent their time and what they've done. I've had people say things like, you know, throughout my life, I worked too hard and neglected my family. I spent too much time at the office. I spent too much time on the golf course. I didn't develop relationships the way that I should have. But I've never, I've heard many things, but I've never had anyone say to me at the end of their life, you know what, I spent too much time with God. I spent too much time in the presence of the Lord. I've never, ever, ever had that said. And I want to look at these verses this morning in three simple ways. I want us to look, first of all, this morning at the purpose of the parable. You find it in verse 1. It says, Jesus spoke a parable to them that men and women ought always to pray and not lose heart. The purpose of the parable wasn't to condemn them, that they weren't praying enough. The purpose of the parable was to encourage them to explore prayer, to explore what it is to spend time with God and to be in fellowship with God. And that is the purpose of our time around the Word today. I don't want you going away thinking, I'm a failure as a believer. I'm so far below every other believer. I want you to go away this morning, and I pray that the Spirit of God will have touched hearts, and that you'll go away with an overwhelming sense of the impression that through the finished work of the cross, Jesus has opened up a pathway for you and I to fellowship with a God who is unlimited. That you might go away with an excitement in your heart 
that the way has been made open for me as an individual, wherever you come from, wherever, whatever strata of society you're in, whatever people may think of you, that you would go away realizing that God has opened up a pathway for you and that you can fellowship with the God of all eternity. That ought to excite us this morning, folks. And that's what I long that the Spirit of God would stir in our heart because that's exactly what Jesus has done for us amongst other things. Made it possible for you and I, the people that we are, the person that Edwin Michael is, to be able to know the presence of God, fellowship with him, take things to the Lord in prayer, and spend time with him. So the purpose this morning is encouragement, that you might get a glimpse of, of, of the possibilities that are before every one of us of developing this aspect of relationship with God, growing in relationship, knowing the presence of God, learning to know the leading of God, really in our lifetime, fathoming what it means to walk with God and be filled with the Spirit and carry something of heaven in our lives and in our hearts. And it's possible. Folks, we're living in a day when too many people in churches think this stuff is all for platform people. And I'll mention that before the end today. This is for the people of God. He has made us a nation of kings and priests in his presence to enter into his presence and to know him and to walk with him. So let's take a little look this morning, first of all, at the purpose. It's to bring encouragement. It's to bring encouragement to us. But you know that whenever we read in the scriptures, it's so important that we always take verses in their context. And not only in their context should we take a verse, but we need to take even whole sections of the Bible in the context in which they're presented to us. In chapter 18, that we have read today, or the first verses that we have read together, comes immediately off the back of chapter 17. Now, no prizes for guessing that. That will be a natural progression. But there's no chapter breaks in the original scripture. And I find it really interesting that the Bible tells us that Jesus spoke a parable to encourage people to pray and not faint. But the context in which it's introduced is what we find in the previous chapter. And in the previous chapter, Jesus is talking all about what the condition of the world will be before he comes again. And he's speaking about the days of Noah and Lot and the condition that the world was in back then, how the world Society was rotten, it was violent, it was immoral, it was corrupt, it was degenerate, it was self-centered. And Jesus was saying, that's the state the world will be in before he returns again. And it's in that context that he drops a parable to encourage people to pray. Now that is really, really, really significant. And when we think of the state the world was in, in the days of Noah and Lot, folks, we have to if you've watched the news, if you look around your world, we have to acknowledge that that's exactly what our world is today. We live in a society that is violent, immoral, corrupt, degenerate. We're living in a world where, where black is called white and white is called black, where right is said to be wrong and where the wrong is declared to be right. And we find ourselves very often, don't we, in conflict with our world and the, the morals and the standards that are being pumped out by governments, by all levels of society. And the church is increasingly finding itself in conflict with the world in which we live. We need to be aware as believers that as we live out our faith in that environment, so we live out our faith in the, the, the moral, spiritual world that we're living in in the 21st century that, listen, it's constantly assaulting our faith. I didn't say insulting, it's doing that as well. But on a daily basis, the standards of this world and the way that society is going is constantly assaulting our faith. It's bombarding our faith inwardly in each of us. 
Are you with me? You, you know, there's not a lot of encouragement in the world to follow God today. Would that not be a fair way of putting it? That we don't get a lot of encouragement in this world to follow Jesus, but rather our faith is constantly being undermined, questioned, eroded. And every day there's a hundred things that hit our life and bombard our lives to undermine our faith and to weaken our commitment and our resolve to walk with the Lord. And not only every day is our faith constantly assaulted and undermined and our resolve to go through with Jesus is weakened, but as well as that, we live in a world where there are a million distractions all the time. Is that not true? Things to distract us from really having a structured walk with God and life with God. You know, we live in a world or in an age of, of technology. And I don't know if you've noticed, but we're addicted to it. Is that not true? We are addicted. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that technology is bad. Don't go away saying, oh, Edwin Michael's now preaching against iPhones and, and iPads. And not at all. I love technology. And we should use it to the full for the kingdom of God. I'm not saying technology is bad, but what I want to say is this. Our surrender to it is. I got out of the car this morning, and as I was getting out of the car, I said to Margaret, I'm just going to leave my phone in the car. And a wee voice at the back of my mind says, oh, you never know, you get in there, you'll have five minutes, you might want to check something. What's that about? We're coming to worship the Lord. And, and, and you get kind of a niggling doubt about whether we should leave our phone in the car. I tell you, we are addicted to technology. And someone has said, you know, it's a huge distraction. And we constantly carry it in our pockets the possibility of unceasing jolts of novelty and entertainment. The world of information, news and everything is at the touch of a screen. And we're obsessed with our social media, our likes, our shares and all of that stuff. And we, we, we're seeing the problems that we have with young people today as their lives are compared with other young people before all of those foundations are built into life and you get your security in life. And, and it's twisting them every way and pulling them every shape. We're obsessed with social media, likes and shares. We've got 24-hour news coverage and we have endless possibilities for entertainment, and we binge watch programs and series because we can't wait to the next week. We'd rather, rather let it build up for six or seven weeks and watch it all in one go. What is kind of happening to us? Well, let me say this to you. I really believe that even as the church sometimes, we're searching for something out there that's already in here. We're seeking to fill something that God has already filled, folks. If we just draw a little bit closer to him and to his presence. And he has already provided what we need in life. I'm not saying we shouldn't have or use technology. I'm just saying we're too surrendered to it. And we're leaning too much upon it. And you know, if Jesus had to teach his disciples to withdraw and wait on him, wait on God. If he had to teach them that 2,000 years ago, how much more do we need to learn to do that today as the people of God? As reading, it was just last week, I think it was Luke chapter 5 or somewhere in around there, where Jesus healed a leper, and he told the leper not to tell anyone. And immediately the leper went out and he shared it. And it said, the crowds increased and they pressed upon Jesus all the more to hear him and to be healed. And then the next verse, I think it's in around verse 16 or something, it says, and so because of that, because the crowds grew, because they pressed upon him, because of those factors, Jesus withdrew all the more into quiet places to wait and to spend time with the Father. It seems like the busier it got for Jesus, the more he felt the need to withdraw and to spend time in communion with heaven. And if Jesus, the Son of God, needed that, and his disciples needed it 2,000 years ago, how much more do we need it in our day, in our generation? To come aside and be in the presence of God. 
You know, someone has said that we are like, um, do, you know, did you ever skim a stone? You get a smooth stone, a nice smooth bit of water, and you skim it to see how many times you can get it bouncing. Well, I know a lot of young people are looking at me like, you're really old, okay? Well, that's how we used to entertain ourselves, okay, folks? Back in the day before we didn't have screens and, and all the rest. But someone has said we're like that. We're like skimming stones in the 21st century. We're going fast, but we don't go deep. And that is the problem of the church today. We're moving fast. And we know all the stuff about God and at the touch of a button we can hear sermons from all around the world and, we, and all of that's good and all the rest. But we're moving fast, but we don't go deep personally in God. And if the Bible shows me anything, it shows me this, that you cannot meet with the eternal God, the ancient of days, in that manner. I'm not saying God can't speak to us as we're driving the car and, and doesn't share his presence with us in the busyness of life. Of course he does, because he's gracious and he's good. But that's not where we're meant to live. There needs to be a coming aside and spending time in the presence of the Lord. We've got all this information, all this activity, but you know it's possible to be informed but still be malformed. It's possible to be constantly informed, but that doesn't mean that we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. That comes in an entirely different way into our lives. And we are living in a world that militates against that. Every day, seeking to assault our faith and seeking to distract us from consistency, from a disciplined walk of meeting with God on a regular basis and filling the tank and being in the presence of God and really carrying something of the fragrance of heaven. You know, we know, all know, don't we, the importance of fresh air. Margaret taught at primary school for many, many years and still does some subbing in primary school, and, and she told me about the little device they got fitted to, to monitor air quality in the classroom. And this little device was set in, and it works on the basis of set of traffic lights, red, amber, green. And if it's green, the air's good, and classrooms, good environment for learning. And she said when it was fitted, the kids were fixated on it. And if it was green, everything was fine. But if it went amber, it was like, it was like, you know, there's going to be, like, this is just the end. We're all going to die in here. They were, they were totally panicked. And that's why I would never be a teacher, because when I would have noticed that, I would have played on it a wee bit, Brian. You know, I just I sort of played it out there and went, oh, what are we going to do? You know, that's a safeguarding issue, okay, when you do stuff like that. But she said they, they were fixated because we know the importance of breathing good air. Let me tell you a story about something that happened on the 5th of December, 1952. Uh, a very historic day in the city of London because it was on that day that the great smog of London settled over the city. Back in the industrial age, they burned loads of coal. And normally what happened in the city of London, they burned coal to heat their homes. They burned it for industry. The smoke rose and the wind cleared the city. But on this particular day, there was some kind of inverted anticyclone and very low temperatures. And rather than the smoke clearing away, there was this stillness that settled over the city. And the cold air forced the smoke down into the city and it became a smog that lasted for about a week, but particularly about five days. And the smog became so dense that streetlights were useless, even in the daytime, car lights were useless, and it was reported that the smog was so thick that in some parts of London, as they walked along the street, you couldn't even see your own feet. And within five days, it's estimated that somewhere between four and 12,000 people died because of inhaling. And not only that, thousands more were left with temporary or permanent respiratory problems because of the smog and because of what they breathe in. And I want to say to you today, in the 21st century, we are living in a spiritual smog 
that is there to assault our faith, that is there to distract us from walking with God. And we are living through something in this season that Jesus warns us about. Is it not interesting that when Jesus spoke about this period of history, as it would be in the days of Noah and Lot, that's the way it will be before the Son of Man comes again, that into that context, he says, now let me tell you a story that's going to encourage you to pray and not faint. I also find it really interesting in Matthew 24 and 25, when Jesus speaks about the end times, he drops in a parable of the wise and the foolish virgins. And as the bridegroom delays his coming, he says, they all tarry and they fall asleep. And then suddenly, a cry grows up at midnight, the bridegroom's coming and they all stir themselves. And five of the virgins have to ask for fresh oil because they have no oil in their lamps. And listen to this, it says, they said, and our light has gone out. And the Bible says in these closing moments of history leading up to the coming of Jesus, because sin and because iniquity will abound, the love of many people will grow cold. And it's into that very context that Jesus speaks this parable so that we would pray and not faint, that we would not lose heart. And it's into that context he tells the parable of the wise and the foolish virgins to guide us, to enable us as believers to navigate our way through this season. And we are living in a spiritual smog that is designed to discourage, a spiritual smog that's designed to cause us to lose heart. But you know what we need to learn to do, folks? We need to learn to punch through the smog by spending time with God. We need to learn to connect with heaven. We need to learn to punch through and breathe the fresh air of heaven. And don't things always seem a lot fresher and a lot lighter when we've spent time with the Lord? Is that not true? You know, the old hymn says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear because we don't carry everything to God in prayer. And you may be here this morning and you may be battling with discouragement. You may be battling with discouragement in your workplace, in your life, in your community or whatever it may be. And you may feel that your faith is under attack. I tell you, it's a blanket of smog that's designed to cause you to lose heart. But I want to say that Jesus has designed a relationship that allows us to punch through that smog and breathe heaven's fresh air. Come away rejuvenated. Come away refilled. Come away encouraged. Come away empowered again and equipped not just to survive in this world, but to have an impact upon it with the power and the message of the kingdom of God. Amen? But I tell you, we don't get there by lying down and giving in to this season. We need to learn to punch through. And notice the alternative that Jesus gives. He told this parable that people ought always listen to pray and not lose heart or not faint. Jesus knew that we can learn either to spend time with our heavenly Father, to spend time in worship, prayer, and fellowship. We can do that or we can faint. It's one or t'other in this world, and particularly in this moment in history. And also, there's something in this post-COVID season within the church that God is calling the church, individuals, back to intimacy and a walk with God, breathing heaven's fresh air and moving in his power. That's the purpose of the parable, to encourage us in. I want you to quickly notice the parable. And what he actually says. What a great story. You know, Jesus, Jesus is the master storyteller. Puts two characters in this parable, and he could have used any two characters, couldn't he? But he picks two particular characters. He first of all puts in a woman. Interestingly enough, the most undervalued, most vulnerable part of society in Bible times. The woman, who had no standing in society, no regard for them. 
As a matter of fact, a Pharisee would have prayed every day to start their day. They would have said, I thank you, Lord, that you haven't made me a Gentile or a woman. Ladies, imagine. Aren't you glad you weren't around in those days? And aren't you glad that the kingdom of God opens up something far better for men and for women? And Jesus puts a woman in the story, but not any woman. A widow woman. The most vulnerable of the most vulnerable section of society. And then right at the other end, he, he speaks about this unjust judge, this, this ruler in the city who has no regard for God, no regard for man, a man without scruples or morals. He was a corrupt politician. Now, isn't that a novel thing? Who would ever have thought of a corrupt politician like? Imagine. And yet Jesus does exactly that. A corrupt politician and a vulnerable woman. And this story, it doesn't matter what generation, everyone in Jesus' day knew a corrupt judge, a corrupt politician, and they knew a vulnerable widow. And so it resonates. And it resonates right down through history, this cry for justice, this cry for, for what is right. And Jesus unpacks this story in just this absolutely brilliant and absolutely amazing way. But I have to say to you that some people have been troubled by this. And when I was first saved, this parable used to trouble me. You know, I used to think, what is Jesus trying to teach? Is Jesus trying to teach us from this parable that, that God is reluctant? to act on behalf of his people because it, it certainly seems like that. You know, you almost, you have, to, you have to pester God in order to get any answer from him. That's the only way you'll get answers to prayer if you just, God gets, you know, if, if God gets to the point where he goes, there's Ben again, I'm sick listening to him. All right, give him a blessing just so that he doesn't trouble me anymore. And when I read this when I was first saved, I thought, why would you use this story why would you, why, why would you, um, you know, why, why would Jesus tell a story like this? Well, in actual fact, it's really, really interesting that Jesus is using a particular technique in teaching. And he's not actually comparing God to this unjust judge. He's actually contrasting them. He's not putting God alongside an unjust judge and saying the two of them are alike. He's putting God alongside an unjust judge and saying the two of them are totally different. It's not a comparison. It's a contrast. He's saying God and this unjust judge are at the two opposite ends of the spectrum. And so you and I need to be encouraged that if even an unjust, corrupt politician will answer because they're tired of being asked, how much more will our loving Heavenly Father hear our cry and answer our prayer whenever we spend time with Him and learn to fellowship with Him and learn to be in His presence? We should not get the idea that we need to somehow squeeze answers from God because Jesus is teaching the total opposite. He gives us this parable to encourage us to pray and to instill confidence in us in the place of prayer to teach us that when we come to God with our needs, that our Heavenly Father's resources are unlimited, that He is attentive to our every cry, that He's generous in His giving, and that He's concerned about where we are at in life. It's not that we have to twist God's arm up His back in any way, but in actual fact, God is totally unlike this unjust judge. Now, follow me for a moment, and we close this point and come to our last one. But this woman, what did she feel she would achieve by coming again and again to this unjust judge? I, you see, I don't believe that she felt she could wear him down. Because the truth is, this man didn't care about her, and he had no regard for anyone, really. He was abusing his position of power. And I don't believe that she came because she thought, I can tire him down and I can get an answer. I don't believe so. I believe she came to him because she expected him to act according to his office and according to his standing. Now, when you and I 
come to God, and we have to come to God, and the Bible encourages us to come repetitively, to come persistently in prayer. What are we doing? You know, I think sometimes as believers, we fall subconsciously at least into the trap of thinking that somehow as we come repeatedly to God that we're kind of, we're, we're building up something and God will eventually give in. That God will eventually release the blessing when we've, when we've built up enough prayer that will sort of tip some kind of a balance and God will say, there you go. And we have this subconscious idea that God is reluctant to give. Folks, I want to shout at you this morning, not at you, but to you, that our God is unlimited. And when our God answers prayer and releases blessing, he's not diminished by it in any way. It is nothing to God to release his power, to move in blessing and to answer our prayer. And we should never get the idea that God is watching the heavenly bank balance in case he gives too much and there won't be enough left in reserve. He's not like us in any way. He's unlimited. And the Bible says he's more willing, listen to this, to give than we are to receive, believe it or not. And we need to break the poverty mentality that we carry often in our hearts when it comes to praying and seeking the face of God, that as if God is somehow like us, and he takes a wee check of the, of the heavenly balance, and he thinks, oh, well, we can't afford to do that this week. He's unlimited, folks, amen? Unlimited in power, unlimited in glory. Nothing is too difficult for him, and he is not diminished in any way by any prayer that he has ever answered in all of the history of man. He remains totally unchanged. And it's his good pleasure, Jesus said, to give us the kingdom. So when we come repeatedly, what is that all about? Well, we need to be really careful when we have to pray over a prolonged period of time about something, that as we pray, that we don't just get into the habit of vain repetition that Jesus condemned, or that we don't start approaching God with the impression that, well, maybe the day's the day that I will, I'll get it across the line and God will give in. No. I tell you, we must come consistently in faith, always in faith, by faith, believing that God will act according to his promise, according to his word, because he cannot fail because he is God. And we must make sure that our, our persistent praying is praying in faith, praying believingly. And we do have to come repeatedly. And we do have to come persistently to God. But whether we come two times, ten times, or two thousand times, every time we approach him, we must come with the understanding, Father, you have promised in your word. I lay hold of that promise, and I am expecting you to act. Come in faith. Come believingly. And it's very interesting that at the end of the parable, that's the very thing that Jesus commands. It speaks at the end, and he, it's faith that he's looking for. In verse 8, he closes the parable by, parable by saying, it's the woman's expectancy. When he comes again, will he find faith in the earth? Let's, let's ditch all this idea that God's reluctant to give and realize that all the promises of God are there to encourage us to pray that God is willing to give and lean into him by faith. And when we have to wait on God, when we have to come repeatedly, there's another reason. It's not because God doesn't want to give. God's working on stuff. He's preparing stuff. He is positioning stuff. Whenever we have to come repeatedly to God, always remember this, that God's delays are not denials. God's delays are not inactivity. They're God preparing the ground. He may be preparing our heart for an answer. He may be preparing the situation. His timings are at work. Or there may be a heavenly battle going on like there was with Daniel. And so we have to pray persistently. We have to pray repeatedly. But it's not because God doesn't want to bless us. Folks, if only I could find the words to convey to you this morning how much God loves you, how much God cares about your life, 
and the smog, and the enemy will tell you, God has forgotten you. Look at your situation. God hasn't answered prayer. God doesn't care. I want to say to you this morning, lady, you are the apple of his eye. He could never forget you. He could never forget that you are his child, that you are in his family. He knows every intimate detail, the good and the bad, and he loves you just the same. He's absolutely reliable. He's absolutely faithful. He's willing for you to win. He died and rose again to make you more than a conqueror, to bring you through in victory and in relationship with him so that you would know peace in the time of trouble, joy in the time of sorrow, that you would know his presence and the you would walk with assurance that God is your God. God is with you. There'll never be a moment when you'll be out of his presence. There'll never be a moment whenever he won't be there. He is your God and he's faithful, reliable, and he longs to bless you. Amen. And he longs that we would know that and that we would live in it. And if we have to pray repeatedly, it's not because God's not active. It's not because he's reluctant. It's because he's working on the bigger picture. And he's setting up his will and his purpose and the answer that he has for you. Let me close. We've talked about the purpose of the parable. We've talked about the parable itself. And we've talked about some of the contrasts in it. We can pray or we can faint. Another one is this unjust judge and God. And they're not alike. They're polar opposites. Hallelujah. And the last little thing I want you to see this morning is the promise as we close. Verses 7 and 8. It says, And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with him? I tell you that he will avenge him. God will answer and speedily. Nevertheless, when he comes, will he find faith in the earth? We've talked about the contrast in the parable already. Okay, we can pray or faint God the unjust judge. Let me give you just a couple more contrasts in the parable as we're closing. But this time, the contrasts are between you and I and this widow woman. And remember, she got an answer. And if she got an answer, we should expect one all the more. Hallelujah. And here's a few contrasts about... The difference between her and us. This woman had no lawyer. She didn't have any standing in this court of appeal. She had absolutely no representative. And she goes in cold to this unscrupulous politician who doesn't care about God or anybody, and she gets an answer. Well, I tell you, whenever you and I lift our hearts to God in prayer, whether it be as we're walking, driving, or in that secret place where we, where we shut out the noise and we discipline some time to wait with God, you and I are not coming in cold. We've got a great high priest, the Bible says, whoever lives to make intercession for us. And if this woman could get an answer without a rep, how much more should we be expecting answers? Because the one who died the one who rose again, the one who shed his blood for us, is right now in the true heavenly holy of holies. And the Bible says he ever lives to make intercession for you. He carries us in his heart with the blood that he has presented in the heavenly holy of holies in a covenant relationship with us. And we have a great high priest before the throne of God he stands. The hymn says, our names are written on his hands. You can expect an answer. You can expect an audience. You can expect an encounter because Jesus is there representing us. Secondly, this woman had no promises, no guarantees of a hearing whatsoever. He was a judge. I'll try him. That was our thought. I'll give it a go. Let's see if he'll do what he's supposed to do. Whenever you and I spend time with the Father, when we bring our prayers to him, I tell you, we're not giving it a go. The Bible is full of his promises, full of promises that encourage us to take it to the Lord in prayer. Why would God do that if he wasn't a prayer answering God? Is he some kind of, you know, is there some kind of mean streak in God? I'll give them all the promises, I'll build them all up, <laughs> and then I'll let them all down. No, 
The promises are there to encourage our praying in faith. The promises are there to encourage us to lean into God and expect the answers. This woman got an answer without any promise or any guarantee. But I tell you, when you read the promises of God's word, and when God quickens his word into our heart in a given situation, when you know that God has spoken and God has, has made that a quickened, ream of word in your heart, I tell you, you pray it, you believe it, you hold on to it, you stand against the enemy, and you don't let anything that he puts in your mind cause you to doubt, but lay hold of the promises of God, because they're there to invite us in. That's a little thing about this woman. Not only had she... No standing, no representative, and no guarantees, no promises. But this woman was a total outsider. She had no relationship with this judge, other than the fact that he was a corrupt politician and she was a citizen of the land. She was a, a total outsider, and he had no regard, and he didn't care whatsoever. But whenever you and I close the door in the secret space and we go into the presence of God... I tell you, we're not outsiders. We've been adopted into the family of God. Hallelujah. Listen to what the Bible says about you as a believer, about me. Listen to this. It says we are heirs of God. Listen to this. Joint heirs with Jesus. We're in. That's the wonderful thing about the Christian faith. See, all other religions... We'll give you a set of do's and don'ts and says, give it a go, wait to the end and see if you're accepted. And Christianity reverses that. It says if we wait to the end and do it in our own strength, we will never be accepted. So the gift of God is eternal life. God lets us in at the beginning, tells us we're totally accepted. You're now my child. Go and live in the fullness and in the blessing and in the reality of it. We are already in the family of God. And whenever you lift your heart to the Father in prayer, I tell you, we're not coming as outsiders. We're not coming in cold. And I don't know what experience you may have had of your earthly father. It may have been brilliant. It may have been horrific. But whether it was horrific or whether it was brilliant, I tell you, God, our heavenly father, is way beyond any earthly father. And his love is towards you. He's absolutely faithful. He's absolutely reliable. And Pastor Ben said at the start about people coming in carrying stuff today. Don't be discouraged. Don't throw in the towel. God knows the way that you take. And he's absolutely, totally with you. And his word is sure. And when you and I go into that place of prayer, when we still out the noise of the world and we, we, we wait on God, I tell you, we're going in as the children of God. And when Jesus hung on the cross, he tore the veil from the top to the bottom. And it wasn't to let God out, it's to let you and I in. Hallelujah. And he actually says, draw near to me. Draw near to me. And I will draw near unto you. What a promise. Come close to me. Think about it. Wouldn't it be awful to live and die? and never really have explored prayer. Never even really have tried to, to still out the noise and the busyness of the world and get a disciplined time to wait on the Lord. I tell you, he's waiting to hear your voice. Yes, we can pray when we're driving down the road in a rush in the morning. But God wants us to still out all the stuff and learn to be in the presence of the ancient of days. The God who is thrice holy, but nevertheless through the cross has opened the way for you and me, for me, to come freely with confidence into his presence. and For you to come and lay it all out before him in prayer. And I tell you, you can change things by the power of your praying. You may be sitting today, you may feel insignificant, you may feel overlooked, you may feel that you don't have much to offer. I want to tell you as a child of God, you have power with God and he invites you into a space to pray. This story I close. 
And that there is all to give you hope, okay? They're both closed now. Um, oh, folks, hear my heart today. Hear my heart. God has an adventure for you. He's waiting to meet with you. He's waiting to manifest his presence to you. He's waiting to share his secrets with you. He's waiting to answer prayer. He's waiting to take you deeper. No skimming. He's waiting to take you deeper in him and fill you and equip you for powerful living. But you know, sometimes I get the feeling that on that day when we stand before God and the rewards are given out, whatever that looks like, the further I go, the less I know about stuff like that. I don't know what that's going to be, but be good. We can be assured of that. But sometimes I feel that when we get there that perhaps on that day it may be just a little bit like the kingdom of God often is. That God often turns things on their head, doesn't he? The greatest, Jesus said, is actually the one who's the servant of all. The last shall be first, the first shall be last. And I sometimes think on that day that we'll be expecting to see certain people up the front of the queue, if there will be a queue, I don't know. But we'll be expecting to see certain people way up ahead, getting big rewards for their, for their service and all the rest. And, and I think that sometimes we think it will be the platform people, the people that we've seen on platforms and church around the world, the big names. And I've got this feeling that somehow on that day, many of those people won't be seen at all because the rewards will be based on faithfulness. And it may well be that there will be loads of insignificant people seemingly who never were on a platform, who maybe never even shared a public testimony in a meeting, will be right out the front of the queue because they learned this secret of this close relationship and fellowship with God. And they were faithful in the place of prayer and they broke through and they moved things spiritually. They punched through the smog. They believed for better. They believed for greater. They believed for a manifestation of the presence of God in their lifetime. They were faithful in the place of prayer and their reward will be great. And when I think of that, I think of one person, my mother. And I don't know if I ever said in, in this church ever before, whenever we were growing up, my mum, she came from a background of faith. And she met my father, who wasn't a Christian. And they got married. And throughout her life, she maintained her walk with God, but was always in a very much a background place because my dad, he was a great man. He was a good father. And thankfully, he came to faith just a few years before he died. And he's with the Lord. And I thank God for him. But throughout his lifetime, he didn't have a lot of time for the gospel. You know, he was quite anti the gospel in many ways. And and, you know, if ever there was a bad Christian, my dad met him. That's what I'm saying. You know, when you tried to witness to him, I said, let me tell you about a boy I knew, and you had to listen to it all. And he just couldn't grasp the gospel until God opened his eyes. And my mother carried this faith in the background, and we were, there were seven of us as kids, none of us walking with God. But all the way through her life, she never stopped praying. And she would she would get down before she'd go to bed at night, just in the living room. Many's a night I came in from a pub, having been out drinking or singing in some pub or club, and she would have been praying on her knees. If you had been in the room before she went to bed, she just dropped on her knees at the front of the chair and quietly prayed whether you were there or whether you weren't. I used to wonder about that, and then I realized later it was because it was the only warm room in the house. Serious, yeah. I said somewhere recently that it's getting back to that. You know, there was no central heating in those days. Nowadays we have central heating, but we can't afford to put it on. All right, so it, we're getting back there again. And she would, she would drop on her knees, and it could be 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. She'd pray, she'd get up, she'd say nothing. And it used to really bewilder me constantly. And then there came this period in our lives when God just broke in on our family and 16 or so people got saved in the space of about three months, just one after the other, gripped with this conviction of the reality of God, transformed 
lives. Three of us as brothers ended up in the ministry and the next generation, while not all serving God, are, some of them are involved in church planting in America, New Zealand, and all kinds of stuff totally, totally, totally changed the direction of our family. And when it happened, you know what my dad said to my mom? He said, you did this. He said, you did this with your praying. And he was right. He was right. I've said, that was the nicest insult you could ever receive, isn't it? You did this with your praying. And she did. And God broke through. And I believe on that day when we stand before him, there'll be loads of people like that who we've never heard of, who never even shared the story of the, the intimate space that God allowed them into because they were willing to wait upon him and set a structure and set apart time. If you're praying for unsaved children today, pray on, mother. Pray on, father. Pray on, grandmother. Pray on, grandfather. Pray on. Keep believing that when you enter in, that you have a representative, that you have a promise, that you're in the family of God, and you're going to God in faith because you believe in the promise of his word. Change things. Change things. Change this town. Change this community. Let's change this island for the glory of God again. Because God says, come in, draw near, and I'll draw near to you. And he told them a story applicable to this season, this season, that we ought to pray and not lose heart and not lose faith and not faint in the walk with him. And the foundation for it all is this table and what it represents, the finished work of the cross. Jesus died not just to get us to heaven. He died to let us into relationship now. Eternal life has already started. Let's be like Enoch who walked with God, then he was not. May it be that the day we see God face to face, it's not that big a jump in some senses because we've already been walking. We've already been in his presence. We've already heard his voice. We've already closed in really close. Don't let life come and go and not fathom. Let's bow in his presence. Thank you so much for listening. Father, we thank you for your presence right now. And I just pray that right now, Holy Spirit, as we prepare to come around this table that speaks to us about the door, the way, the path that you opened up into your presence, that, Lord, you would deeply stir our hearts about what it is to have relationship with you, to walk with you, to fellowship with you, to breathe heaven's fresh air, to be a people of relationship and intimacy and prayer with God. Lord, stir an excitement in every heart. And may we go from this table in a moment or two and from this service today, Lord, determined to give you space, to make room, to not be the skimming stone, but to be the people who go a little deeper in Jesus' lovely name. Amen.